It's a beautiful day, Father. It's a beautiful day because you've made it, because you prepared it for this purpose that we would gather in your name, and so that we can be at your feet as you teach us through your word. I thank you for each and every person who you have brought into this fellowship today, this morning, and for those who have come to fellowship with us but have not been able to make it here this morning. I pray that you would continue to bind us together as a body of believers and strengthen us for the work of ministry, that you would give us hearts to pray for one another and to encourage one another, hearts to study together, to hold each other accountable to the standards that you set forth in your word, and to lead each of us as we go forward in serving you in our own specific call. So we come to you this morning like we do every week because we know that we cannot serve in our own strength. We cannot please you by our own works. Only by faith do you find pleasure in our lives. And so in the way we come, we come with an open heart and an open mind, hoping to hear something from you in your word so that we may be better stewards of what you've given us and better servants, better witnesses, better ambassadors for Christ in the world. So teach us, Father, as only you can. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Genesis chapter 12. Well, chapter 12 introduces us to Abram, and even in what we've seen so far in the first nine verses of the chapter, we've learned this man is a man of some complexity. He's the man of faith. Paul calls him in Romans the father of faith for the way he becomes the emblem, the picture of how faith works in a man's life. James, in his letter, referred to him as a friend of God, quoting from the Old Testament. Abraham was the friend of God. He's the patriarch of the patriarchs. But for all the ways we could lay accolades on this man, he is also a man who, as Scripture records, makes errors, makes some serious mistakes along the way, uh, shows weaknesses in faith at times, in the way all men do, I guess. And as I think I've said here before, long before he came to be called Abraham, the man of faith, the friend of God, he was just Abram, a man who was new to faith, called by God, but yet still unfamiliar with how you depend on God, how you actually walk in faith, a man who still had a lot of growing to do. We are all, to some extent, Abram, before we are ever becoming Abraham. So anyone who's new to faith has to progress, and Abram is no different. He had to progress through trials, he had to go through challenges, he had to grow spiritually. And so in study of Abram, we can learn a lot about what that looks like, about what it looks like to depend on God and grow in God rather than to depend on our flesh. Last week, as we studied This chapter, Moses taught us that this man of faith had heard God's call, he had responded, and he received God's promises of blessing. And as we moved into this phase of Genesis, we actually began something that I didn't note last week uh, in passing, but we actually began God's fourth period of rule over his creation, or the fourth dispensation of grace, the fourth movement of God in the world as he rules. You could refer to this as the dispensation of promise or the dispensation of patriarchs. It's distinguished from the prior time of God's rule in the way God has moved now from simply governing men through human leadership, human government. That's what was instituted after the flood. Now he's narrowed the focus. Now he rules through a set of promises and blessing that he has extended to one man, and by that one man, a family of men, of people, who become Israel. And that now becomes his chosen instrument or people through whom he will rule the world, how he will reveal himself. This is the the next line in God's plan. And in the second half of chapter 12, the person he picked, Abram, was not picked for merits of his own. This is not a man who God singled out because of how good he was, 
necessarily, in his own right. But merely for God's own purposes was Abram chosen. And the easiest way for Moses to show us that is to relate the story that ends the chapter, a story of how Abram messes up so that we understand he was a man. Beginning in verse 10 today, I want you to look at how Abram's missteps here carry him outside the land for a time. Verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. The importance of that verse necessitates a moment of pause, and then we'll come back into the text. It's simple enough to understand. Abram has been affected by a famine that's caused him to move to where there is food. He's been wandering, we've been told already, in the land as God has shown him what he has been given. He's been surveying this land that God has said would be his and his descendants. And at the earlier part of this chapter, as we hear the wandering described, we know he's moved from northern parts of Canaan down south, and eventually he reached Negev, the southern desert of the land of Canaan. It's the final wilderness that you find yourself in prior to reaching the border of Egypt. So you don't, if you're in Negev, you're already in southern Canaan, southern Palestine, southern Israel today, and you're on the border or near the border of Egypt. So as you enter verse 10, Abraham, or Abram, sorry, is living near Egypt's border, making his new life in Canaan. And then Moses says there was a famine in the land. This is the second time that we've seen Abram face a challenge or a test. There'll be 12 in the course of his story overall. And as you consider this newest one, the famine, it's an intriguing statement because we know famines are not luck. They don't just happen. Nothing just happens. God produced these circumstances. And that's where the intrigue is, because it begs the question, why would God bring famine into the land, even as he has just delivered his chosen man, Abram, into that land? It seems counter to what we would expect. The Bible tells us that Abram left Ur. History tells us that Ur was a very prosperous city in the day that Abram and his family lived there. Ur, back in Mesopotamia, in the fertile plains of Mesopotamia, was a place where crops and herds were plentiful. It was a relatively rich area because it was so fertile. Archaeologists who have uncovered settlements from that general region of the world have found evidence that the city of Ur, back in the day of Abram, traded far and wide using the Euphrates River as a means of moving goods, but they traded with places as far away as Asia and Africa. You don't have that kind of international trade unless you're a very prosperous and powerful city. So Abram's family was probably accustomed to having plenty. Living in Ur before they were called out and sent to Canaan, they were living the good life, probably, or at least they were accustomed to it at some level. And then you have the living God reveal himself to Abram, call him to a better place, a better place than what he had in Ur, a place that God says he had prepared for Abram as an inheritance. Well, what goes through your mind if you're Abram? What do you suppose he expected to find in Canaan? If he left a prosperous place, because the living God has told him there is a better place, and you show up in this better place, what do you expect to find? I would assume famine is not on the list. And more than that, I would assume he expected something beyond his dreams. Because he was a man of faith. He believed what he was told. So if pagan, ungodly pagan Ur was a prosperous place, Surely, God's promised land would be a far better place, offering a far greater thing, far easier life. So when you have the famine show up, what does Abram do? I'm assuming here, because it's not written in the text, but I'm assuming he was scratching his head. What kind of thoughts go through your mind in a circumstance like that? Maybe he was asking himself, 
What went wrong? Maybe I'm in the wrong place. No, 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 no. I can't be. God appeared to me and told me this is the land. Did I do something wrong? This is punishment, right? This is me doing the wrong thing. God now mad at me about something I did. Surely I'm in trouble. Did he, did he just forget? Did he forget his promise? Is he not trustworthy? I mean, I'm making those things up, but it's not a far stretch to think that some of that was going through his mind, maybe. Whatever the cause, it's apparent from what we do have on, on the pages of Scripture that it caused Abram to say, I need to take matters into my own hands. I need to do something about my circumstances. So, if following God and depending on God for his needs and his inheritance was plan A, and that's what we've seen him doing up to this point, then he must have told himself it was time for plan B. And plan B was, go to Egypt. Because if plan A isn't providing for me in the manner to which I am accustomed back in Ur, then this can't be what God had planned for me. There's got to be something better. Let me go figure out what that is. And as we heard, Abram's plan B was to follow the world's lead and head to Egypt. Now, ancient archaeological records of this day confirm what we're seeing here reflected in Scripture with regard to Abram's flight to Egypt in the time of famine. When famine would hit Palestine, historically, many in that culture and in that area would migrate south into Egypt for uh, greener pastures, frankly, just to find food. Because even when there was regional drought, even if the drought affected Egypt, the flooding of the Nile in Egypt was always sufficient to ensure enough land that was irrigated for, for crops that there was food. Egypt was the world-renowned center for refugees if there was ever a famine in that part of the world. And there are ancient records that reflect that, about how there would be mass migrations of people in and out of Egypt when there was times of famine. So what does the world do? What does the world know to do when there's famine? Go to Egypt. That's the answer. Go to Egypt. And so Abram does what the world does. He goes to Egypt. Many of you may know this already if you've studied Scripture, but Egypt plays a very prominent role in the history of Israel and in the story of Israel, both in the Old Testament and in the New, actually. And at times, it's become a place of protection for Israel. We'll study that later in the book of Genesis when we see uh, Jacob's family sent into Egypt after Joseph and put into a place of protection for a time. There are other times when Egypt has become... Israel's oppressor, and you see that reflected in stories, particularly out of the book of Isaiah, where Isaiah talks to the historical role of Egypt as an oppressor, as an enemy of Israel. After Jesus was born, you, you probably remember, he was taken into Egypt as a young child by his parents under God's direction, a place where he would be held and protected for a time. And then we also know from Isaiah that in the coming kingdom, when Christ returns and rules as promised, Egypt will remain a wasteland during that time, uninhabited, intentionally so, specifically so that it would stand as a testimony against Israel's enemies, that they would not defeat Israel, that God would defeat them. So Egypt has this very complex history going throughout the pages of Scripture and beyond. By all of these examples, we've come to see Egypt as a type, as a picture in Scripture, it has a certain meaning associated with it. It is the picture of the Gentile, unbelieving world. The sin of the world is represented by Egypt in the way Scripture uses that nation. It pictures unbelieving Gentiles who would at times give Israel sanctuary, at times also persecuting them, in the way Christ as a baby was carried into Egypt for a time to be hidden away from the king of Israel who was trying to kill him. That's a picture of how the church the Messiah, the body of Christ, is planted in the world like Jesus describes a seed, which grows to become a great tree, 
hidden in the world for a time. Jesus, not seen physically, but seen in the sense that the body of Christ reveals him. We're ambassadors for him in the meantime while he's gone. And then later one day, Egypt is a picture of judgment in that time of the Messianic reign, of what God is prepared to do to the world who does not believe. So if Egypt is the picture of the sinful, unbelieving world, then what do we make of Abram's choice to go into that place? He responds, Abram responds to this time of trial, which we understand God delivered. This is God's choice to bring the famine. How does Abram respond to that test, to that trial? He goes to the world. He retreats to the world. He goes back to what he knows. He goes to Egypt, looking for the provision that he expected to find in God's land, but didn't find, or thought he wouldn't find. Now, personally, when I see this and I put this together in my own mind, I take great encouragement out of this. And I say that because in watching Abram make this mistake, I understand my own mistakes. I see my own pattern of life in this a little. And by the way, it was a mistake. Abram's venturing into Egypt here was a mistake. He receives no instruction to leave the land of Canaan from what we can see in Scripture. And because of what happens to him while he's in Egypt, stumbling more, seeing more sin propagate because of the first sin, we can come to conclude that this was not the thing God had for him. So he makes a mistake. So Abram may be a man of faith, but at this early point, he's a man unaccustomed to living by that faith. How many of you can identify with that? I mean, if you're a believer, you can't help but identify with that, right? There is a huge difference between knowing that by faith we've been saved and then testifying to it by how we live. That, that's the difference between being justified and being sanctified. So Abram here faces his first test as a man following God. And what he concludes in the face of that test is that reliance on God is not sufficient under the circumstances. He has to do something in his own power. When we're new in the faith or when we have not been tested in our faith, to be more specific, we do not have personal experience in depending on the Lord. It's just a fact of life. We don't have that experience. We hear all the mantra. We hear all the teaching. We hear some of our brothers and sisters preach about their own experiences, and it all sounds very nice. It all sounds very churchy and and proper and religious, and we agree and we nod. But if we have not had those personal experiences, we have no basis of reference to understand what those things are and how they work in our life. When we're new in our walk... We have no experience. But we do have experience in depending upon ourselves, don't we? Frankly, that's all we've ever known. So though we've come into faith and we are a new creature in Christ, we still have all that old learning hanging around. What does the world preach? Self-reliance, self-made, pick yourself up by your bootstraps, don't depend on anybody else. Be true to yourself. You're number one. Look out for number one. Obey your own instincts. The power to succeed is inside you. Just listen to yourself. All of those nice flowery words don't cover up what we're really saying, which is the pride and the sin of our own heart is enough for us. We don't need outside expertise, let alone God, to tell us what to do. That's our nature. That's how we're wired from birth. And trials or tests are God-appointed opportunities for us to learn what dependence on God looks like. Early in our walk, we're likely to revert under pressure to what we know best, depending on who we are. If I'm someone who is used to doing things myself, and then I get into a trial in my faith, I'm going to run to what I know. We're going to depend on ourselves. But in truth, that thinking that I'm depending on myself, that's actually a lie in itself. Even when we were living apart from the promises of God, dead in our sin, before we knew the Lord, we were just as dependent on God then 
as we are now. We just didn't know it. We just didn't recognize it. You're no less dependent on God when you have a job than when you're out of work. When we get without the paycheck, then we're conscious of the fact that we're dependent on God. All of a sudden, the reality of the fact that everything we have is going to come to us only if God provides, that's when it really hits home, when we don't have that steady income. Then we get the job again, and we go right back to thinking we're providing for ourselves. No, you're not providing for yourself any more than you were before. Everything you have is from God. Everything you get is from God. He can turn it off in a moment. He turns it back on in a moment. And does so for his own glory. And we we rest in that. But the point is, when we start thinking that we're the ones in control, it's a lie to ourselves anyway. So I'm encouraged, I guess, when I read Abram's story a little here, the father of faith, having this bad day in faith. Because even though it doesn't set an example for us so much, it simply reminds me that if Abram had to work, I'll, I'll have to work too. So his mistakes don't justify ours, but they remind us that this is a progress of maturity, not an instant achievement. And what is the engine that drives that progress, by the way? It's the Spirit of God bringing the truth of God's Word to our hearts, and then the fuel for that engine are trials and tests delivered by the Lord. James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote this to the church, verse 2 of chapter 1. He said, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Maybe one of the hardest verses in the Bible to believe, right? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That statement was made in the context that we're talking about today. Count it joy when God brings you a trial, because what he's just put in front of you is not misery, not punishment, but opportunity. And the opportunity is specifically directed at your maturing, my maturing. So that as we experience trials and we learn how to depend on God in those trials, we will be less likely to revert back to what we used to do and more likely to do something entirely different and God-glorifying, and that is lean on Him. But you can't get from here to there without the trial. It, It doesn't happen otherwise. It's practice. This is the early experience I believe the Lord gives every new believer because He wants you to understand that walking in faith is not a recipe for what the world offers Every believer I know starts out like Abram, thinking that because they've been called into something new and special, everything will be better from here on out. But the truth of Scripture argues an opposite perspective. It says that now the tough work begins because he's got to change you from who you are to who you need to be in a Christ-like manner. And the only way he knows to get you there is to put you in a trial or a test where the worst in us comes out and he sets it aside and brings us to something better as a result. And many believers, unfortunately, are being taught today in various places that their entrance into the faith means they now have arrived on easy street they're going to be rich they're going to be popular they're going to be thin i don't even know what they're promising these days it's something that is not biblical because it says it's all going to be better how many of you from your own experience walking in the christian faith have found that to be true i'm waiting for someone to raise their hand because i really want to talk to you because i want to figure that out for myself if it's true it doesn't happen None of it is true. God's word teaches this. Just as the prophets were persecuted by those they were sent to, and just as our own Lord was crucified when he came to his own people, so will God's children be mistreated by the world that does not know the truth. The Lord said we should expect to be hated by the world for his namesake. Now, that does not guarantee everyone you meet will hate you. In fact, if that is true, you may be doing something wrong. But... It does reflect the spiritual realities that we are set apart and that will cause 
issues for those who don't understand why. The reality is, though, that the world appeals to our flesh. There's something about what we left behind that still is appealing. And our walk of faith appeals to a spirit that we've been given that's new. And that war will continue. And as Paul said in Galatians 5, we are either being led by our flesh or we are being led by God's spirit, but you can't follow both at the same time. So pick one. I don't think it's any coincidence here, by the way, that Abram had ventured close to the Egyptian border right at the time of the famine. You ever thought about that? Knowing that Egypt here is a picture of worldliness, of of the world, the sinful, unbelieving world, then we might be able to see Abram's choice to live in the Negev as a picture of a man trying to hold on to the world while walking with God, just trying to keep it nearby, not too far out of reach, just as an insurance policy against famine. And then when the trial came, it was going to be that much easier for Abram to just step across the border into Egypt when he's already so close. Christians, I think, repeat the same error when we entertain thoughts of remaining married to the world we left behind. So we're talking specifically here about a Christian who lives with one foot still in the world while trying to to understand what it means to be a Christian and live the life the Lord's called him to live. Jesus made really clear when he prayed that long prayer to the Father in John chapter 17, he made it abundantly clear that we were called to do something entirely different from that. John 17, verse 14, Jesus, praying to his Father, says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you, listen to this, I do not ask you, the Father, to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. And I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Listen to what he's saying. God's children are like Christ, in that we are spiritually different than the world. And that difference will cause the world to disapprove of us and distance themselves from us in various ways. And yet Jesus said pointedly to the Father, I'm not asking you to take them out of that situation. I'm not asking you to rescue them, because that would serve no good purpose. If they aren't there to testify, then there is no glory of God being projected into the world. Rather, he says, just as the Father sent the Son into the world, he asks the Father to send us out into this world that's not going to like us, in the sense spiritually of finding nothing in common with us. But look what he says at the end. He asks that we, the body of Christ, would act and think as one with each other and with God, living a sanctified and godly life. So how can we fulfill what Christ is calling on us to do, what he's asking the Father to make possible, if we individually live one foot in the world, one foot in the faith, longing for what the world offers, retreating from sanctification and holiness, cannot make that happen. You end up defeating the very purpose of the church. If we look like the world, they don't know we're different. They don't understand why we have anything new to offer. So when we cross the border into Egypt, so to speak, seeking association with the world again, seeking the world's approval, that's what it usually comes down to, we want to be approved, instead of relying on the Lord, then we fail in this mission. Not only as a church, but individually. 
So here we are in the enemy's world. We're told to be a part of it, but we're not told to live in it the same way. We aren't to think like the world. We aren't to seek for what the world seeks. We aren't to love the way the world loves. We aren't to like what the world likes and live the way the world lives. Those things should not be ours. So Abram here failed this test, in a sense. He stumbled. But I'm arguing out of Scripture that I think he did that because he still had some affinity for, still some clinging to the world he left behind. And he's made a big step. He moved. He went from Ur to Canaan. He deserves all the credit in the world for that act of faith. But he still longs a little for it. And now when the test and the trial comes, he runs to what he knows. He runs to the security of a land that had food. Was God going to leave him without food? Was God going to let this man die in the desert before Isaac came along? We know he isn't going to let that happen. But look what Abram robbed us from. He robbed us from the story of how God preserved him despite a famine in the desert. There's a measure, you might say, of God's glory stolen out of the pages of Scripture, theoretically, because Abram ran and helped himself in that way rather than staying behind and waiting for God to take care of the problem, as God would have done. Think about that next time you're leaning on the world when you have a test or a trial, because we may be doing exactly the same thing. Stealing a measure of God's glory for how his strength is not being testified through our weakness. So in verse 10, Moses says, Abram sojourned. The word there for sojourn in Hebrew, ger, it means literally a temporary dwelling. It's implying temporariness to the dwelling of Egypt, which says Abram knew this was temporary. He was not moving to Egypt. He was sojourning in Egypt. He's going to leave only as long as it takes to get through this rough patch. Boy, that sounds so much like me. I know I'm not supposed to do this, but it's just temporary. Just a little bit. Come on, I just need to get past this rough patch, and then I'm sure I'll be right back and doing all the things God wants me to do. Don't lie to yourself. There are an awful lot of people living outside God's counsel and will right now, and they got there from a decision they made 20 years ago, which was only going to be temporary. You're playing with fire. When we play by the world's rules like he's doing here, it's hard to know where to draw the line. And let me show you what I mean. Look at verse 11. It came about that when he came near to Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. And they will kill me, and they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. We could launch into a whole husband-wife counseling session straight out of this passage and stay there for a long time, so we won't do that. And clearly, this man is making one compromise after another, driven by the same fear that brought him into the land to begin with. You see how the pattern rolls? A fear for food led to a bad decision to walk without God's counsel and without dependence on God. That brought him into the world and all that the world brings, right? The whole game is on now. You go into the world, you play by the world's rules. You can't pick and choose. Abram begins his bold request here with a very smart entry, something that I think every smart husband should start with. Something like, have I told you recently how beautiful you are? It's, I think there's a bit of starting the conversation off with strategic statements like this that are part of his plan. King James Version says, I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon. And I've written that one down because I figure that will come in handy at some point. In truth, though, and I think this passage is sometimes mistaught because we don't fully understand the history of what was going on in that day, the the cultural history. His request here is not driven so much by her beauty, though I am not trying to diminish the beauty of this woman. Clearly, it is significant. 
his fear, though, is being driven by something different. It's a well-known cultural practice common to this day among Egyptians, and it's recorded in, in the Newsy tablets from uh, archaeology. It's something we have good documentation on. Egyptians during this period of history were very fond of and very famous for wife abduction. And this is what you find in these ancient records from the Newsy tablets. Egyptians prized beauty. Beauty was a valuable commodity. And if a man happened to have a very beautiful woman, then there was a market for her. There were noblemen in Egypt, the pharaohs certainly, but others as well, noblemen who would have paid a good price for someone to bring them a very beautiful woman. Think of it as as slave trade in a sense. So if you walked into that land, a foreigner, someone who hadn't been there before, no one's seen you before, and you've got this good-looking woman, that's like bringing in a a truck of gold. Someone's going to take it from you. And, of course, if you're already married, you can't be remarried. It was funny, right? They have this respect for the marriage bond, but they have no problem killing you. So there's, some, there's something amiss here in their, in their cultural morals. But in any event, the, the men who would take the woman and try to sell her to somebody would have to kill the husband so that they could say there was no husband involved and so that he didn't follow and try to get her back and mess up the deal. So they kill the husband. Now the woman's available. They take her. They sell her. That's the famous... Uh, or, or well-understood cultural practice that Abram has heard about and he's worried about. He's taking a look at his wife and he's thinking, wait a minute, this isn't going to work out so well for me. Now, if the woman was unmarried, let's say she was traveling with her brother, for example, it's going to be more likely that those traders are going to barter for her. They're not interested in killing for the sake of killing. There's some risk involved when you do something like that. They'd much rather conduct a normal transaction buy the woman, and then sell her for a profit. And so Abram has taken the position here with Sarai that it's better for him to call her his sister and hope to stay alive through the course of a transaction. We assume that what he was planning to do was find a way to escape before he had to complete the transaction. Because often you would negotiate a price and then people would have to go away and get the money or get the cattle or get whatever they're going to use to pay for the woman, then they'd come back. And in the meantime, you could skedaddle and be gone. So the principle here, I do not believe, is that Abram expected to lose his wife. That's sometimes the way this is taught. It makes him look even worse than he already does. It's more to the issue of how to keep alive long enough to escape the bad situation. But it begs the big question, why get into this situation? Why even let yourself come to this point, right? If you know this is a practice, don't go into Egypt. Now, we also know, by the way, Sarai was the half sister for Abram. So some have taken that to say, well, he wasn't technically lying. Well, wait, 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 wait a minute. If you're a parent and your child gave you this kind of an answer, how would you classify it? What I always tell my kids is a half-truth is a whole lie. So if this is only half-true, it doesn't change the basic dynamic here. He's asked his wife to lie to keep himself alive. Now, where was Sarah in all of this? And the women are often the first in any audience to think about this question. What in the world was she thinking? Why did she agree to play this game? The only answer we have, and it comes in part out of Hebrews chapter 11, the only answer we have is that she trusted God more than she trusted her husband. And trusting in God meant doing what she had been told to do as a woman, which in this case was to respect her husband's wishes and to honor his request knowing that he was a fool. In fact, you could back this up. What do you think she thought when he said, we need to go to Egypt? This is a well-known cultural practice. 
She knew this already. What do you think she could have said then? Are you crazy? Right? No record of that. And I doubt, given the patriarchal culture of the day, that she would have dared said a word to him in that way. So what she must have been thinking is, my husband's an idiot, and he's doing the wrong thing. God will deal with him. (laughs) Meanwhile, my call as a wife is to respect and honor my husband, despite his failings, not because he's trustworthy, but because God is. And if I'm doing the right thing, God will take care of me. Whatever comes is his intent, but I will be able to stand before him on my judgment day with a clean conscience that I did as I'm supposed to do. Abram, that's his problem. He's going to have to do that same thing, and then it's up to him to defend his actions. But I'm going to be able to defend mine. And God does not fail her, even though Abram does. Take that to heart, wives, as I hope you will. My wife has rested in that fact uh, many days that she is not trusting in me because I will fail her. In fact, it's, it's noon almost. I'm sure that's already happened at least a couple times today. But God will not. Abram's fear of death here and his dependence on the world has caused him to live a lie. Have you seen the downward spiral that's taking place here in just these first few verses? And now, and the thing that convicts a man more than anything, he brought his wife with him. Because through her silence, she is going to lie with him. She's going to be lying, essentially, by her silence. Brought about by his command and her respect of him. But the point is, by the leadership of a man in the family going the wrong direction, he takes his family with him, one way or another. And I have to believe, based on the testimony of James, when he says we ought not be quick to be teachers, for we will receive a more strict judgment, I think there's a principle behind that statement that applies to husbands as well, given that the husband and the father is called to be the leader in his home. If we make these kind of mistakes and bring the family with us, I think there's a stricter judgment applied for the husband who by his sin caused his family to suffer in sin. I, don't, I would not take that lightly as a man, as a husband. And, and this is not to minimize, by the way, the woman's own culpability when she makes mistakes. I'm simply talking about the issue here of how one person can lead another one. So here's the inevitable course. When we live with one foot in the world, and look at the pattern, first we live near the world, kind of on the border, just in case. And then when the trial hits, we step over the line and we start depending on the world. And then when we find ourselves in the world, all of a sudden the rules are different. They're mean over here. They're vicious. We've got to start protecting ourselves against some of this stuff. They lie. I lie. I've got a boss who cheats. I've got to cheat too. I've got to cover up for his cheating or I might lose my job. All of a sudden it's just one spiral after another. Truman used to say, I don't tell lies so I never have to remember what I've said. And look how it turns out for him. Verse 14. It came about when Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Therefore, he, meaning Pharaoh, treated Abram well for her sake and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. Well, this is interesting, isn't it? Abram's doing pretty well by all this, isn't he? But meanwhile, Sarah's back, Sarai's back in the harem. In short, Abram's plan didn't work out the way he thought it would. Before he had the chance to escape, apparently they were able to just take her. In other words, rather than negotiate the price and then come back later with the goods, they just took her and then came back later with the goods. Oh, not what he was expecting, probably. And though his lie did save his life, it produced this new outcome which he didn't anticipate. And because they thought Abram was just Sarai's brother, they paid him well. 
Pharaoh had plenty of goods. But did you notice the irony in verse 16? Abram tells Sarai earlier to lie so that he would be treated well because of her. He meant, in other words, that he would be able to live and he would be able to escape with her. And then yet, in verse 16, what does it say? It uses the same words, actually exactly the same phrase in Hebrew, to describe how Abram collects wealth from the sale of his wife. It's irony. It's Moses commenting on the fact that here's a man who said, just lie, make this lie with me and it'll go better for me. And in the end, it went better for him, but in an entirely wrong way, and it went bad for her. It just puts salt in the wound, I guess. Now, if you notice the things he receives, I don't need to go through each of them, but if you count them, there's seven. Seven categories of materials that Abram receives here, which would suggest, by the fact that it's a seven, that this is the Lord at work blessing Abram, despite his sin. And we're going to learn later here that one of the female servants is a woman called Hagar. And that woman proves to be the seed of a future sin that would affect Israel for centuries and and, and millennia. So here again, be careful. When you play with the world, God is not going to abandon you. Paul tells us that though we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So we're not in jeopardy of our Father in heaven disowning us for the sake of our sin. Thank goodness that's true, because if it weren't, none of us would last. But that does not mean our sinful choices don't carry long-lasting consequences. In 17 through 20, as the chapter finishes, look at the Lord's faithfulness here in spite of Abram's sin. The Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And then Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say, She is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. Pharaoh's struck here in some fashion, plagues, something we're told here, in defense of Sarai. I like to believe, and I think there's every reason to believe this in Scripture, certainly, that this was done in a way that prevented Sarai from being violated, so that the sanctity and the 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 preservation of the promise of the seed would not be violated by any contamination from Pharaoh. So Sarai leaves this situation never having been with Pharaoh in a sexual context. In fact, uh, there is rabbinical teaching. Rashi, I think it was, taught that the plague was one that, like leprosy or something, that prevented physical intercourse, such that it prevented Sarai from being violated. That's the, the Jewish traditional teaching around what may have been done here. But she and her obedience is rewarded. And yet Abram also, to an extent, he walks away with all this wealth. The Pharaoh, I find interesting here, he chastises Abram for lying. Do you know how to get convicted faster than anything else I've experienced? When the unbelieving world calls you out for your sin. And that's a horrible moment in my experience because it's true. It's, it's super convicting. You know God's behind it. But you also feel your witness just falling away you realize that person has no reason to ever listen to you again when it comes to matters of spirit or truth. Who are you to tell them anything? It's just, it just, it's just a burden. But Pharaoh doesn't say here what we would like him to have said. He doesn't say, you know, if you had told the truth, I wouldn't have taken your wife. That's probably not true. He probably would have killed Abram and taken the wife anyway. So it's not to say Abram, Pharaoh's the good guy here. But regardless, it wouldn't justify the lie. It caused Abram to, to forego his witness. It caused him to make a mistake of sin that leads to a greater sin later with Hagar, 
one compromise after another, and yet the story we're left with as we end is God remains faithful to his promises. Remember how the promises began in the beginning of this chapter? There was no quid pro quo. There was no conditional language. There was none of the, if you do these things, then I will do these things. It was merely, I am here now, and I am doing these things. The unconditional nature of the covenant is working out here in full display. What did he say to Abram? Those who curse you, I will curse. Those who bless you, I will bless. Not because you're worth it. Not because you don't make mistakes. Not because you're the perfect guy on earth. But because I said so. And Moses takes the man Abram and shows us his faults. And the God that called Abram and shows us his mercy and his grace and his strength and his faithfulness in the same story. It's the same God we serve. The same God that called us. Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for Abram and your call in his life. Thank you for the promise you extended to him, the promise that through him all nations would be blessed, and that blessing, Father, came ultimately through the seed, the Messiah, the Christ that we all know. And we, the nations, Father, the Gentiles of the world who have been grafted in by that promise, are thankful for a God who has enough mercy to extend his promises beyond even the nation of Israel and into the lives of people who were not your people. And yet, you chose to do it through a man like Abram, who, by his own imperfections, demonstrates to us that we are not included for our own sake or by our own merits. We are included in the same way he was, Father, by a call, by a sovereign choice. Thank you, Father, that you called us in and made us your own. And now, Father, I ask that you would give us the strength to move away from the Egypt of our life and into a place where we can depend on you. Let us be the witness you call us to be. Let us be the man or woman of God who is called out and lives in that way while still in the world, unafraid to go to the world and tell them about the Christ that we know. Strengthen us through these studies and through our time and fellowship. Prepare us for the work. Guard our hearts and keep the enemy away in those times of testing and trial that you bring. Let them have their good work in our hearts. And thank you, Father, for Oak Hill Bible Church and the many who have gathered here on every Sunday and for many years. And let us continue in that way according to your will so that we may serve more and glorify you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.